When I was about in ninth or 10th grade, I learned how to snowboard. And that's kind of like uh, in air quotes, right? Like I, I, I'm still sort of learning how to snowboard. Uh, but because of who I am and how cheap I am, in ninth and 10th grade, I couldn't afford the lift tickets, you know, to go to like a real ski area. And that was fine because one of my friends lived on this like huge hill, this steep hill. And we're like, why would we pay to have somebody pull us up when we've got these perfectly good legs and we can save all of this money, right? So we set about work on the backyard of, of this big steep hill, making ourselves uh, a terrain park, all right? And we started with a little jump and we thought, that's pretty awesome, let's do another one, right? And then we had like a, a rail, you know, to like practice sliding on. In my mind, it was awesome. I don't want to like see pictures of that time because I know that it was probably much less impressive. Uh, but we would like get speed, you know, and go off these jumps and like practice our roast beef, mute grab, whatever, you know. It's a ridiculous sport with ridiculous names. But why I share that story is, is that eventually we built this massive jump at the very bottom where you'd have the most possible speed coming down the hill. And it was, uh, it was called a tabletop. So it was, a, it was a hill, it was a jump up, and it was a long, flat surface. And it was a very important exit ramp off from the back, right? And the idea is that you hit, you do your trick over the tabletop, and then you'd hit on the exit ramp and come down safely on the, on the other side. Well, it wasn't very long until we built this thing that the first guy hits it, and he's got all the speed in the world coming down the hill, pops it up, does his trick in the air, massively overshoots the exit ramp on the other side and the angle is all off. The front of his board goes into the dirt. He flips forward and he breaks his collarbone. And some of you know, if you know snowboarders, like having an arm in a sling is kind of a, kind of a not unusual circumstance at all. So he goes to school, you know, what happened, what happened, you know, and he kind of explains the story and embellishes a few of the details, including the trick and stuff like that. But it's fine. He's not going to get called out on video for that. <laughs> Next guy, about a week later, same jump, same problem, too much speed, comes down, tip of the board, same spot in the dirt, same shoulder, left arm in a sling. What happened, embellishes the story. The third guy, a few weeks later, hits the jump, same problem, same injury, collarbone, left arm in the sling. My school newspaper did this little article on us, they call this the Broken Wings Club. Everybody with their left arm in a sling. There were three of them at one time. And it was the first week of March. The snow's kind of melting. And I'm like, I'm going to hit that jump. This is going to be my last run one way or another. I did not massively overshoot the jump. I am not nearly that courageous on a snowboard. I just missed it entirely. It was just too far to the right, whatever. And I just, nothing there. And I landed. It wasn't a, it wasn't a broken collarbone. It was, a, it was an injury. I show up to school the next day, left the arm in a sling, and nobody asks me what happened. <laughs> the question was, why? <laughs> and I, I said words that I had no idea how profound they were. I said, I never thought that it would happen to me. You see, I watched three of my buddies do the exact same thing with the exact same injury, but for whatever reason, in my mind, I was convinced it would never happen to me. 
So in part three of our series, uh, where we're talking about another new normal, we're talking about new rhythms, we're talking about new habits, we're talking about how this year is going to be a year like none other. This year is going to be the year that we set up all of these new habits and rhythms in our lives. We talked about doing that with our time before, we talked about doing that with our money last week. Today we're going to talk about what we do with our moral lives. Because I want to tell you that every single person who's ever crashed, not just the snowboard, but crashed their life into the ground, said a version of that same phrase, I never thought it would happen to me. Like nobody, nobody is sitting out there going, you know what I'd like to do? My five-year plan is that I'm going to end up bankrupt. That's my goal. It's my five-year plan to lose my job because of some kind of a moral failure. It is in my five-year plan to lose my spouse, to lose the respect of my kids because of some kind of downfall that I have caused myself. Nobody says that. But every single person who's ever in that bad place was once upon a time in the place you are now. Nobody ever says, I'm going to wreck my life. Yet here we are. So the principle that we're using throughout this series is that we're taking, uh, we're taking a look at our time, at our money, and now at our morals. And what we're doing is we're creating margin. Uh, margin, is, uh, margin is this breathing room of life, right? We said margin is the difference between the absolute limit that you can possibly bear with your time, with your money, whatever, and margin is your current pace. And that gap, that difference between your absolute limit and your current pace is called margin. Or it's, it's called breathing room. It's a space that you can catch your breath. And it makes sense with time. And we talked about money last week, and it's like, oh, it makes, it makes a lot of sense with, with money. But today what we're going to do is we're going to make a new kind of definition. It's called moral margin. And I'd like us to remember it. Moral margin is putting a little distance between you and temptation. One more time. Moral margin is putting distance between you and temptation. And we're doing that today because of a simple truth. And I'd like to explain where that comes from in the Bible. But the simple truth is this. You're not as strong as you think you are. And I say that with all kinds of humility, and I don't know you, and I don't know your story, but I do know me, and I do know my story, and so I'm going to be the first one to say, I'm not as strong as I think that I am. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, Jesus' kid brother writes this, James. Uh, James chapter 1. The words are going to be on the screen. You can follow along in, uh, in your Bible app or a paper Bible as well. James 1, starting off in verse 13, it says this. James is writing to the church scattered everywhere, just like today. And James is writing to the church, and he goes, Hey, when tempted, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And just, <laughs> I want to hit it because of how ridiculous that statement is, right? Like James is, is saying these words because he's kind of responding to something that he's heard. He's responding to something that's in the water. And so he gets word that like people are, people are finding themselves in these failures and they're like going, oh man, God is tempting me. And he's writing them going, no, 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 God is not tempting you. He's not the one pulling out those particular strings, right? There's another team out there. But for our sake this morning, we're going to say the other team out there isn't God. It isn't even the devil necessarily. It's us. Because you're not as strong as, as you think you are. I'm not as strong as what I think I am. And I think that there's an angel in heaven somewhere going like classic humans all the time. Like very little has changed. Uh, I'm a millennial. I'm on the older side of millennials. They call us geriatric millennials, which doesn't feel great. Uh, it's fine. So I kind of I got to the internet at one point, uh, one point in my life, so I remember life without it. But as a millennial, I'm, I'm used to 
even a geriatric one. I'm used to being blamed for all kinds of the problems in the world, like millennials are killing the Kleenex industry and the funeral industry and the flower industry. Like, I'm used to getting blamed for things all the time, right? And as a, as a millennial, I, I get on a very deep level the blame game and how it works, right? Because then we get blamed for stuff, and then we start blaming boomers, and then millennials and boomers gang up, and they blame Gen Z, and you're too young to respond, so just kind of watch out. It's coming for you. And it's just, it's kind of comforting for me to know that like this blame game of blaming God, blaming others, blaming somebody else, blaming anybody but yourself is nothing new, right? Because it's thousands of years old when James writes, and then James is just picking up to a story that he heard back from Genesis, the very creation of people, Adam and Eve in the garden. And God has gone, listen, you just have like one rule, one thing, just stay away from the tree in the middle, just one thing I'm asking is don't eat from it. Just stay away. Cut to the next scene and they're biting it into the fruit of the tree. And God's like, what? Why? And the blame game starts. It's that old. Classic humans. <laughs> you know, it's the woman that you put here with me. And the woman's like, it's the snake's fault. And they're both together going, God, it's your fault. I mean, how could you let this happen? It's, uh, it's the blame game. But it's helpful, I think, for us to know, to do a little Bible study, a little word study on, on some of the phrases and some of the words that are used by James in here to know just like where that temptation comes. Because if that moral failure is going to hit us and if we're going to be in that place of like losing everything, right, because we're not as strong as we think we are, if we're going to create some of this moral margin in our lives, we got to know like where that temptation comes from. And this is really important. The temptation comes from inside of us. James is going to cause because of our evil desires. Like it comes from inside. James uses two two interesting words uh, to talk about the, some, some differences of where bad things come from in James chapter 1. A few verses earlier, if you scroll up, James 1 talks about trials. And he talks about trials specifically, and he goes, uh, okay, um, choose joy. You know, be joyful, right, brothers and sisters. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind, because trials produce perseverance, and perseverance Perseverance builds up. Perseverance makes you mature and complete, not lacking anything. So these trials, James, are going, like, really, they're doing something. They're doing something for you. But trials, we have to understand, are always external. They're on the outside of us. Uh, trials are like, trials are when your parents get sick. Or if your kid gets sick. Through no fault of your own, that's a trial. You lose your job because of downsizing industry-wide, nothing you could do. It's trial. It's external. It's objective. It's outside of you. Temptation, though, comes from within. Temptation comes from our own evil desires. Temptation could look like losing a job, but it's not because of an industry-wide downsizing. Temptation comes from the evil inside of each one of us. Each one of us going, I never thought that it could happen to me. And what we're going to see James do in just a moment is, is fill this picture out to show us just how devastating it really is. Verse 14, the next line, James says, Each person, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. And the word that he uses are enticed. Do I have some, some fishermen in the room, f fisher people in the room, people who enjoy fishing, whatever the language is? few of them, all right? I am not. So the part that's going to come up next is going to get a little bit weird. I don't like to go fishing because fishing has a dangerous possibility of turning into catching. <laughs> and then what do you do, all right? It's bad enough to have a worm on the hook. 
A big old fish with a worm? I don't think that's any better. So I try to stay away. Not my thing. But James picks up on a fishing term. When he uses the word enticing, the word that he uses, the Greek word is delazo. I had to learn Greek, and so now you do too. Hurt people hurt people, as we say. <laughs> delazo is a fishing term. It means to bait. It means to entrap. It means to allure. And it means to entice. Literally, and a wooden translation might call it to hook. I think James knows something about fishing. And he's talking about how this temptation works. He goes, you know, there's, you know, there's that hook, and there's that like shiny, big old, juicy worm on the end of there. Or for you, it could look like a $100 bill. Or for you, it could look like a little piece of chocolate cake, right? Or for you, it could look like a new job, new car, new person. And you know, whatever it looks like to you that's shiny and pretty and can get you things, on the inside of that, once you bite into it, on the inside, there's a hook with a barb, and it's going to pull you in, and it's going to entrap you, and it's going to drag you away. There's a hook into it. And so, like, when we're talking about these moral failures, I never thought that it could happen to me, you know, and you're not as strong as you think that you are. And when we're talking about all this stuff, we talk about sin, we have to acknowledge something. We've said it before, we'll say it again, is that, is that sin at its core can be a lot of fun. You know? Like, don't pull that on the context for me. YouTube is not going to be kind to that sort of thing. But if sin for you it doesn't look fun, you're probably doing it wrong. Like, sin, sin is shiny. It's sparkly. It has this lure by saying, like, oh, no, no, I would never. You're just setting yourself up for that moral failure because you're not acknowledging, like, there is an allure to it. It is shiny. It is enticing. I do kind of want to bite into it. Even though I know what's on the other side of that thing. And so when somebody says, like, I'm, I'm strong enough to resist, um, there's been a ton of research on this same topic. And I just wanted to share a little bit because I found it so interesting and honestly pretty helpful uh, so a lot of this research, it kind of coalesces around a phrase that I'd like to teach you. It's called restraint bias. Restraint bias is the, is the propensity to vastly overestimate your ability to resist temptation. Va we have a tendency to vastly overestimate our own ability to resist temptation. We think we're stronger than we are. And what ends up happening over time, studies have found, is that our ability to restrain ourselves fades and fatigues just like every other muscle. I thought this was so interesting, right? So they do it on people that are like trying to create new habits, right? Um, like, like eating better, right? And they're like, okay, this is what I'm going to do, you know? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk by the chocolate cake every time, you know? And it's like the first time is walk by the chocolate cake and I'm like crushing it. I did it. And we think that we made one good decision, and so we're more likely to make another good decision next time. But what the research actually shows is the opposite, is that, is that restraint, just like every other kind of muscle, has a tendency to fatigue over time. Willpower wanes. And so we walk by the chocolate cake a second time, just slower this time. Make sure to take in some of the aroma, right? The third time we walk by the chocolate cake, only this time we're like, how did it get in my hair and on my face? I mean, I know that I did. I make good choices. 
It's like the meme of the guy who's like, you know, eating well. He's reaching for a snack, you know, going to get a a handful of carrots off the counter. And he like slips and falls and knocks over the sleeve of Oreos. And they all come in his mouth all at the same time. It's like, I don't know what happened, man. I made good choices. It's restraint bias. We think that we're stronger than we actually are. And willpower, fatigue, the restraint that we have, willpower wanes. And willpower fades over time. And eventually... Eventually, we give it. And we're not really talking about chocolate cake because that doesn't matter. That's not a moral thing. Food isn't a moral thing. What we're talking about, we're talking about restraining yourself all day, biting your tongue around Janet in accounting because she just drives you up a wall. And you come home and you have no more willpower left for your wife or your kids. Blow up on them. Because it's just gone. And why is it gone? Because we've got to admit, first step here, we're not as strong as what we think, are, think we are. We'll bite into that temptation. And James gives a very bleak picture in the next line about what this can turn into in verse 15. He says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. What starts small has a tendency not to stay small. What starts as a look doesn't stay a look. You know the story. What starts as a linger doesn't stay that way. A touch kind of staying the aroma of her perfume just a little while that's not wrong it's so small and they share hope at a dream that you have and some secrets along the way my wife doesn't get me like you do let's make a plan run away. It's fully grown now. And it gives birth to death. What's at stake as we have this conversation today about moral margin is life. Our very lives are at stake. And so we have to do something about it. And so I'm going to Offer two suggestions that the Holy Spirit might be speaking into your heart to convict us on today. The first one is to move the line. Uh, move the line. Everything is at stake, so we've got to make sure to get this thing right. This is what margin, moral margin looks like. If you've got some tape, you might not be able to see it on the ground. That's okay. But we've got moral margin is there's a line on the ground somewhere, someplace, Right? Now, you can just kind of fill it in in your own mind of like what in particular this line represents. Um, maybe it's a less thing. Maybe it's a coworker thing. Maybe it's a financial thing. I don't know what it is, but there's a line, a moral line on the ground. And on this side of the line is good. On this side of the line is God. On this side of the line is all things God-honoring. And on this side of the line is bad. On this side of the line, it's sin. On this side of the line is, as James just described for us, really the stuff that wells up 
into death. And so what do we do in life most of the time? We see that there's a line out there, right? And so what we want to do is identify it. There's the line. Clearly, it's bright yellow. And so I'm just going to cozy, like, like right up to the line. I'm not going to go over, right? Unless somebody pushes me. I'm not going to go over unless the devil drags me in there. Or I can blame God for it. But, but I'm not going to go. I'm going to cozy right up to the line. This is going to get a little personal and get a little in your business around here, as we say. But I think this might be the Holy Spirit talking if you get uncomfortable. But I met my wife when I was 16 years old. So I had this like teenage brain that was very underdeveloped. No offense to 16-year-olds, but you'll get it in time. You know, and I was a Christian. I was a church kid, right? Like I'm going to youth group and I had good Christian church kid buddies in my life. And when I started dating who, the woman that would become my wife, I, li- I liked her. Right? I liked her. And so what do you think me and my buddies talked about? Well, as good Christian guys, we're like, hey, we what do you think the line is? Right? Like, what, do you, what, do you think, what do you think is like, uh, what, what's okay, you know, and what's like permissible? And so me and my good Christian 16-year-old buddies were like, oh, do you, you think like hand-holding is, hand-holding is like over here. This, like you can definitely do that, Right? I'm like, what kind of kissing? And it's like, well, it depends what kind of kissing, right? That we're maybe, I don't know. What about touching? Which, what are we touching? You know, there's all these, like we're cozying. I want to know just exactly where the line is, right? We do this so we, can, so we can cozy right up to it. The thing about life is we don't do this with anything that doesn't obviously look dangerous, do we? Like, it's snowing outside right now. We had a snowstorm at Christmas time, driving down the highway maybe to a family member's house, and you see those signs as like, caution, you know, the bridge might be slippery, bridge ices before everything else. Obviously dangerous. Nobody is like, how fast do you think I can hit that bridge before I die? (laughs) Right? You see the bridge and you're like, 70 miles an hour, I'm definitely overboard, I'm in the snowbank. I'm going to back way, I'm going to back way, way off. What I'm going to do, if 70 miles is going to kill me, I'm going to drive 50 miles an hour. Because I know that it's dangerous. I've moved the line. You don't go to the John Ball Zoo lion enclosure and be like, how far do you think I can lean over before I fall in, right? Cause the next Harambe, some of you get that reference. When everything started falling down, we don't do that. We back away. We move the line. What I'm going to ask you to do today with the, with the help of the Holy Spirit in your life is to just ask, like, where are you vulnerable on this thing? Right? Like, what's the part of your life? And you're like, man, I, gotta, I could really gain some wisdom here. I could avert disaster by just moving the line back, heeding the wisdom of James. That's death over there. I'm going to move it back to stay safe, to stay in what God might call life. Some of you have the intense spiritual gift of buying things on the internet that you don't need. I'm just, just calling it out there, right? You're going to first name basis with the Amazon guy, checking in every day, right? Asking about his family. What does it look like? Like, Financial ruin could be, depending on how much is bought, you know, whether it's over the line. I don't know, like, what it is. It's not necessarily, like, about that. It's, there's a line we talked about last week, like, spending more than you have that's, like, over the line. It's causing ruin. It's causing disasters. And some of us, what we like to do is we like to live just right on that line. 
What does it look like to move the thing back? It's to say, you know, I don't want to find out what James talks about. I don't want to find out what death looks like in particular over here. I'm going to move the line back here. We did a little, little staff time earlier this week where I just kind of asked people, like, what would this, what would this look like? And some suggestions that came in. And people are like, listen, um, not storing your credit card information, like, in your phone or on the computer has saved me so much money. Because every time I want to buy something, instead of, like, one-click buy, I have to go find my wallet. That small thing has just saved me from so much, has saved me from a death. I don't even know what it might be. What does it look like? What does it, what does it, what does it look like to you? What does it look like for you? Other examples. Binge watching TV or so, and or social media. Just dial in numbers. If your phone rings, pick it up, okay? You sit down and you're like, I've got a little while before bed. I'm going to unwind with a TV show. Pretty soon it's 3 a.m. You're 12 episodes deep into an unsolved murder mystery. You're going to be a wreck tomorrow, blow up on everybody else around, right? And I'm not coming down on the show in particular. That's like a sermon for a different time. But what, is it, what does it look like to move the line back? I talked to somebody who straight up deleted Instagram app from their phone. They're like, I still have an account. I still go on Instagram. I still like the church stuff. Don't worry. Like, I still do the thing. But for me, I'm going to move the line over here because when you have to access Instagram on a web browser, it's so terrible that it helps me not to spend too much time on it. It's good. It's moving the line. Where do you, where might you need to move the line? I've been a pastor in West Michigan for long enough to realize that there's this pendulum that's at work. You know, in Grand Rapids, it was a time when the, the moniker, you know, the, the, the motto of Grand Rapids used to be Jerusalem. They used to make t-shirts on it and stuff because it's like world record for the most churches on one street. And it's like, oh man, there's churches everywhere. Everybody's a It's Jerusalem, right? It's a pendulum thing. And I've been a pastor long enough now to recognize that the pendulum shifts oftentimes dramatically the other direction. Say, you know what? Christians can be fun too, you know? Like, can a Christian drink alcohol? Probably. Sometimes, maybe. I don't know. And so the pendulum, like, super swings. And so the city of church is going, you know what? Freedom. I can do this. I'm going to swing this pendulum. And it becomes Beer City USA. I'm not coming down on that. I'm not, I'm not doing that. But Beer City USA, you know, it, it kind of turned into, like, Distillery City USA. You know what I mean? It's like, wasn't quite enough, so we, like, ramped it up. And just as this observation, I think the pendulum has swung so far the other direction. Some of us are not going to swing back. What does it look like to move that particular line? Next time I go out, I'm just going to have one. No, (laughs) you're not going to go out, right? Move the line better than that. There's this element, there's this element, isn't there, that it's like, come on, man, it's so restrictive. I don't want to live a restrictive life like that. In preparation for today, I heard, I heard from a gentleman uh, in response to, a, to the question, what have you found yourself saying, I never thought it would happen to me? You know, and there was a positive or negative, right? Like a big promotion, getting accepted in college, positive things. And then there was like the negative things. They come in response. What did you think never could happen to me? One guy. I never thought addiction could happen to me. I never thought overdose could happen to me. I never thought getting arrested could happen to me. 
I never thought rehab could happen to me. I never thought sobriety was going to happen to me. And here I am five years into it. I never thought that it would happen to me. I thought, I'm reading into it now, that I was stronger than I really am. We're moving the line. It's so, it's so restrictive, but I want to drop in on the person who says, man, life, isn't it, isn't it, just to move it back like that, isn't that so restrictive? I want to drop back in on that guy's story and just ask him, what do you find as more restricting? The officer's handcuffs or five years of sobriety? I don't think I need to ask him that question before knowing the answer. He goes, it's not restrictive. It's not even freedom. What we're talking about here is life. And death over here. Uh, two things in the response to James. Uh, first one was move the line. The second thing is fix your eyes. And this, this comes from our theme verse of the year, uh, Hebrews 13. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter, perfecter of your faith. Because what we often do is, is we look at the line to find out exactly what it is. But, but you know what's just beyond the line? The thing that gets us towards the line is the lure, right? Is the shiny object. Is the, is the thing with the, with the hook un, underneath it to, to grab us and, and to pull us over there. We spend so long trying to find out where the line is that we forget that there is a being out there who is far greater, far better, far superior than anything we could possibly imagine before. And he's over here and his name is Jesus. And so we're not going to pay attention to the line so much more. We're not going to give it that power. We're going to give that power to Jesus who actually deserves it. We're going to turn around and we're going to fix our eyes on him. Because you know what? Three important words that if you remember nothing else from this time together, just three words. God is better. He is better. He has always been better. There's a shiny thing trying to pull us over here and just be reminded in those moments, hear this still small voice whisper into the depths of your heart, God is better. The angels are with God in heaven as they're Adam and Eve blaming each other as we have since that day. And the angels are going, you've got to be kidding me. They traded, they traded him for that? They traded him for her? For this? It's so short-lived. Don't you know you're going to be dead in a little while? Like, come on. I mean, it's obvious. God is so much better. Move the line. Fix your eyes. God is better. You're not as strong as you think you are. Inventory time. Where is it going to hit you? Maybe it's a pride thing, looking down on everybody else. Where are you vulnerable? Maybe you're mad at God. I heard this saying earlier. I wanted to share it with you. Sometimes we justify our, uh, our disobedience with disappointment. Sometimes we're just so disappointed with God that it justifies our disobedience. Like, come on, God, why are you holding out on me? I'm stepping over the line. Maybe it's a financial thing. Where are you vulnerable? Maybe it's a critical attitude towards others. Maybe it's a holding on to an unforgiving kind of spirit. Maybe it is a lust sort of thing. So I've got kids that are approaching becoming teenagers, which absolutely terrifies me. Because I was a teenager. <laughs> but I was the geriatric millennial, right? So I had a, a cell phone, but it was a Nokia brick phone. You guys, some of you know what I'm talking about. It was awesome because it had that snake game on it that you could just play for hours. Like, forget about reels or TikTok. Like, 
the snake should never come out with that kind of an interface again. It's too addicting. And the second thing that was awesome is that the battery only needed to be charged like every year, like annually on your birthday, (laughs) and that was it. But I recognize things are different now. And as a parent of kids coming up on teenagers, and they're great, don't get me wrong, but it just terrifies me. You know, and so I did the thing with Kyle's help, our youth director, to sort out, like, which device or which software, you know, what the apps that we're going to install and, like, trying to be a good dad, protect my family. We're going to install these things. So I did a little research. I installed the apps. And one of them on my daughter's phone, I installed the app on her, uh, like, the phone doesn't, like, connect to anything, just like a Wi-Fi kind of deal. But uh, she used it to watch YouTube. And, uh, and I installed the app on her phone, and it's, like, not working. She's like, Dad, like, the app is not working. And I'm like, well, maybe it's because it's an iPhone 2, you know, and, like, it's sometimes glitchy. But she's like, no, no, it's the app. It only started doing that when you put that app on my phone. And I'm like, okay, you know, like, let me give it to me. Let's sort it out. And then she asked, she turns to me, and she asked me a more profound question than I think she will ever know. She goes, Dad, when you installed the app on your phone, did it make YouTube go all glitchy for you too? And I was in preparation for this message today trying to explain to her, well, I'm an adult, you know, and uh, I use my phone for work, um, and I'm stronger than I think <laughs> that I am. That day I installed the app. Is it because I'm weak? I mean, probably, honestly. Do I want to use it as a good sermon illustration? Yeah, it's worth it. I said that last week about budgeting. I do it just for you. (laughs) (laughs) On the other side of this line is death. I'm trying to move the line. Fix my eyes on Jesus. Because whatever that is, God is better. Is better. We're going to celebrate communion right now. And this is, uh, this is a strange thing. And for some of you coming into this space, um, there's, there's some anxiety around this act. Because maybe you don't call encounter your church home. Maybe you're new to church in general. And so the first thing that I just want to say is like, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. I hope that we explain everything really, really well so that you can feel comfortable to follow along as the Spirit of God prods you. Really what this is about is meeting God. Because when we're talking about death and we're talking about being dragged away and we're talking about sin, creating this margin, this breathing room, we recognize that every single one of us have found ourselves on the wrong side of this line, haven't we? Every single one of us got dragged into it, sometime by our own leading, And I just pray that you get to experience the loving grace of God drag you back to life. That's what this is about. It's about meeting God here, communing with the infinite. How this is going to work at all of our locations, you can use the center aisles to come forward. Use the outside aisles to return to your seat. We've got stations set up throughout the auditoriums. Find the one that's closest to you. You're going to hear a couple of words the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. That's a moment to reflect. Reflect on the Spirit of God meeting you powerfully.
this morning, nourishing your soul and dragging you and me back to life. There's gluten-free options available at the stations as well. We recite the same words that people have used for thousands of years. I want to invite you to stand up as we hear them. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. And breaking it, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that same night after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of my new covenant. Do this and remember me. For every time we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. For 2,000 years, we've been saying, these are the gifts of God for us, the people of God. Come forward whenever you're ready. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.